Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 92nd Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. My name's Quentin Smith, and I am here to be your Sherpa up a mountain of board games. Sherbet, I love it. And I am joined by my, as always, irreverent and hit-and-miss colleague, it's Matthew Lees. <laughs> it's the reverend of irreverence, me. It's a British spring day outside, which is mm. to say, dark... It's wet, but Matt and I are indoors. We're in a well-lit room. We've got yeah. a little cup of rubibose tea. Yeah, recording in my little home studio slash spare bedroom, in which some of the sound foam to make the podcast sound nicer fell on you and woke you up in the night. It's true. It was hilarious. It was the thing is when when we talk about your baffling foam falling on me in the night, people need to understand this isn't like a small bit of foam. No. This is something the size of a six year old. Yeah. That fell bodily on me in the middle of the night, leading to me to think that I was under attack. Yeah. This I mean, this room is so echoey that even with all of these huge chunks of foam, it's still it's still quite echoey. It did remind me though, it's not bad. When I was younger, I uh, attached a number of picture frames to my wall. Um via a kind of network, a webbed network of duct tape. (laughs) Okay. So I kind of realized I was like, hey, this duct tape is so strong, I can stick pictures to the wall. But then because it was all kind of webbed together, it meant that inevitably one night while I was asleep, all of these pictures... fell down in one big chunk as you can tell on from this, top of me matt and i struggle with life and that's why we find solace in board games uh, it was one of the stupid things i've ever done anyway let's let's carry on well we'll talk about your tramways experience later oh gosh uh, so <laughs> <laughs> in this podcast we're going to be talking about new frontiers the race for the galaxy board game it's big it's expensive um i've got mixed feelings about it we're going to be talking about some expansions for mm, comet yeah and altiplano uh, and for Altiplano, and we're going to be talking about El Dorado, a game of Dorados and the elves who, who love, love them. them. And we're going to be talking about tramways. Mm. If you haven't heard of any of these board games, that's fine. Matt and I are going to tell you what's up. Tramways. Ah. But also, excitingly, Matt has to get his blood tested. Yeah. For board game. They've got to check there aren't any components to my blood because I've been eating so many of them over the years that yeah. they're worried it might have bled in. We do feed Matt all the bad games. That's mm. some shut up and sit down trivia for you. So we're going to rush through these yeah, and I'm going to start long. by uh, perhaps doing it a disservice and rushing through a box that is maybe the biggest box we've looked at this year. Right. <clears throat> it's New Frontiers, um, the race for the galaxy board game. Right. Now, we have stuff we're excited about on this podcast, so I won't be talking about it for very long. But what happened here is, once upon a time, there was a, and still is, a beloved, curious card game called Race for the Galaxy. One of the rare masterpieces of board game design. This game is really just a deck and a bunch of chits. Um, Every card in the deck is a different corner of the galaxy, so maybe it's... A card might represent some galactic trendsetters who are having a cool futuristic laser disco. It might be a planet of lizards. It might be a space marine encampment, whatever. But the important thing is every card is unique and players will play these cards from their hand into what's called their tableau. So maybe you own the space marines, but I've got the rebel stronghold in my little corner of the galaxy. But the twist in Race for the Galaxy was always you paid for these cards by playing other cards from your hand. So you had to choose what you wanted, but then throw options away. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on in that board game, but that's the basics. Now, since then, people have um, made other games within the Race for the Galaxy universe, which is definitely not that... We get really confusing if I use that I mean, it's kind of like... It's not even exactly... They're often almost like the same idea for the game, but with a different mechanic or a different conceit. So it's yeah. almost like remaking a comic as a film. It's some of the same DNA, but a different game. So a, a few years ago, we had something called Roll for the Galaxy, which I quite liked. Um, 
when it eventually came out after being dogged by production difficulties for a while, uh, we were really impressed. It's like a lovely dice game where uh, as you are, you can acquire new dice, you roll your dice in a big plastic cup, the dice are beautiful, and it turns uh, Race for the Galaxy, which is this very high skill level card game, into something a bit peppier, a bit zanier, a bit dicier, and uh, I felt like that game definitely there were reasons for it to exist. Right. You might be able to see where I'm going with this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because if you want a game, if you want a dice game, Roll for the Galaxy is a lovely game in its own right. If you want a tactical card game, Race for the Galaxy is phenomenal. Now we have New Frontiers, the Race for the Galaxy board game, which comes in an enormous, like, 90 pounds dollar box. Um, and you're doing... <laughs> What's happening? You just, you, I mean, at the first bit, I was like, that's fine. But you said race for the galaxy in, an, in a, an enormous 90 pounds dollar box. I was like, have you turned into Steve Brule? Because I hope so, because I love Steve Brule. I, I I meant pounds. It's cost 90 dollars in America, 90 pounds. I was abbreviating. 90 pound dollar box. 90, 90 pound dollar box. You, you, I mean, after all of our joking around pretending to do uh, Tim and Eric sketches, we are we are turning into a Tim and Eric sketch. Yeah. Which I, is great. I, for one, I'm looking forward to becoming senile and just uh, the shut up and sit down thousandth podcast being one long run-on sentence from yeah, me that you say to yourself looking out of a window <laughs> the mic isn't on no microphone <laughs> yep uh, okay so oh goodness um with new frontiers offers the race for the galaxy experience of um playing planets and developments and putting them in front of you and then every planet and development makes you better at certain things like you've got a trading planet that makes you better at trading all this stuff. However, where in Race for the Galaxy, um, planets were cards, now they're enormous circular discs. Where in Race for the Galaxy, developments were cards, now they're large rectangular tokens. In Race for the Galaxy, where trade goods were cards, now they're enormous plastic trade goods. So everything that Race for the Galaxy kind of, um, by sleight of hand, turned into cards and meant the entire game was just cards which also and this is really important meant the game was cheap mm. now it's all been replaced by an enormous physical this is more like race for the universe right uh, it's kind of like because the universe is a bigger than i i might call it like walk for the galaxy like Ooh. i don't know it's look it if this was the first game in the series i'd be like Wow. And actually, this is a weird one because we're not going to mm. review it. We're not going to cover it because the only coverage I would give it is like, buy Race for the Galaxy. It's cheaper and I think it's better, which mm. is just a death knell for this box. Yeah, I guess it's like that thing of like whenever, for example, Interpol, a musical band, released a new album. It just reminds me how good the first album is. Yes. Like, and it's not to say that the new albums are bad. It's just the first one was amazing. Well, this is why I feel bad because uh, New Frontiers, a race, the Race for the Galaxy board game, if I'd played this first, the top of my head would be taken off. It's lovely. It's got so much color. It's every token and card in the game has mm. art. What an experience. It's just... But, but the, the bigness but, doesn't add anything. No. And the fact that it comes after the card game, like, is... It's almost like we're going through time backwards. What would have made way more sense is if this board game had been first... And then the designer had gone, you know what? I could collapse all of this into a card game. Could make it more elegant. But instead, they've taken a card game and made it sprawling so and wobbly. here's a question, though. Is it like that this game, which is sprawling and massive and bigger, is it effectively the same game? Is it something that fans of Race for the Galaxy who really want a big box expensive thing can have a little treat with it? Uh, ooh. Or is it that the game itself is different and maybe just not as good? Um, it's a little from column A and a little from column B. It's a great question, though. Um, I would say that it's similar enough that if I was teaching it to people who played Race for the Galaxy, the card game, 
um, I would be able to teach it by going, okay, here's how this game is different. Okay. And I could probably cut the rules explanation in half. So it shares that much DNA. But in terms of it being a deluxe experience, it's interesting. And if you... But well, here's the other thing. If you like Race for the Galaxy and you want something that's different, well, my first answer is obviously definitely buy Roll for the Galaxy, the big colorful clattery dice game. Mm. I can't imagine a human being who loves Race for the Galaxy and then wants something a bit special. So they bought Roll for the Galaxy and is buying the expansions of Roll for the Galaxy. But what they really want, Matthew, is another more expensive version of the same game that's even yeah. less fun. you know an interesting thing is that like often we find that when you do start chucking gigantic components into games it, it has an effect and the effect is one which is often one that you're not gonna it might be un- unexpected like in container for example these massive resin ships i found the joy of chugging them around actually was added something to the game and there's no way they intended that is the thing like they might pretend they did but nobody you can't know until you fiddle with it in a yeah. way and in the same way like rising sun like they, they probably didn't realize that the fact that these miniatures were so bloody big meant the fact that when you bought it you're like is this all it does this massive thing i've just bought so the effects of like aesthetics of opponents of when you hold them when you pick them up and how they feel to move around like if you're playtesting with standard materials you can know that you can know how it feels to play this size of card or this print quality of card to yeah. the table but when you're making these custom big things like unless you're going to do a specific final early print run to play test, you kind of don't know what you're going to get. And you might end up having gigantic, big, expensive components that, best case scenario, don't really add anything to the game. Or worst case scenario, like, just somehow make it worse. Yeah, I, I, this is... I'm going to follow your thread there. I think I'm going to end talking about this by just picking one example from the game, um, which is something that... A, a, an improvement that would sound great on paper, but in practice is just funny. Um, so in Race for the Galaxy, all of the planets you might colonize are cards, right? In in New Frontiers, um, you now have an enormous bag where every single planet is its own unique, quite large circular token. So when players explore planets, you reach into the bag, rummage, 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 and pull out a bunch of planets and then pick which planet you want to go to. Mm-hmm. So that sounds more tactile, more interesting, yeah. more, more uh, luxurious than just thumbing through some cards. Yeah. In practice... Um, when you actually play New Frontiers, I mean, drafting and passing around these planets, passing like six large tokens around the table, that's awkward. I mean, and also, funny thing, while having tokens instead of cards sounds good, the art assets that they've taken from the cards are now put on the tokens, because a token doesn't have as large of a surface area as a card, the art has actually shrunk. So while you've got a more luxurious component, the art, where all the theme is kind of coming from, is now a little smaller and mm. a little less detailed. So all kinds of tricky stuff like that. I would, I would, if you're for some reason super interested in New Frontiers, the Race for the Galaxy board game, then by all means, Google it. Decide for yourself whether you want to experiment to everyone else. I think you can probably ignore this one. Okay. Uh, and, but we've got some lovely stuff moving on. Mm. Matthew Lees, you've been going expansion wild yes um expansion annuary uh extended all the way to the beginning of march this year for that me is a joke that it's, i did years ago that i wish i'd brought back this year yeah expansion annuary which is my january where i review loads of expansions, expansions yeah but obviously because of uh climate change uh, <laughs> <laughs> it now goes on until march so uh, effectively i've been going back i had a realization um uh, last year where i suddenly went my gosh comet it's great (laughs) um and i thought well look let's just jump back and play through these we got to play um the most recent expansion a little bit earlier the gathering of friends and uh, i thought look let's just go and do the whole hog so i went back and i played the tarsetti expansion 
And then after that, played the set expansion. So do you want to give like... Why have they both got set in it? Tarseti, set. I don't know, man. Just I... come up with a new Egyptian god. No one will know. They all have made up names. <laughs> I all... swear no one will notice. Uh, I'm joking. You're probably not going to offend people who still worship Ra or whatever. I mean, I probably will, but do you that's want, fine. Do you want to give the top line to uh, what is Comet? So Comet is a big, dumb war game. And it doesn't really play like a war game, but it feels like one. And that's what I think is the core of it. I've got down to the the brass tacks of why Kemet is wonderful. You have this board, which is in ancient Egypt. You have pyramids in your little cities. And you go off and you fight each other and you try and take over temples and hold temples. And really, it is a game where you've got to just, you get to 10 victory points. And the ways you get to 10 victory points don't often involve fighting. But it's one of these games where you look at it and you're like, this is a cool big desert and we got these little cool colorful miniatures of all of the armies and you look at it and you think this looks like a game where we're going to go out into the desert and fight each other and it is <laughs> and it's not you know like it, it it's one of these games that perfectly actually gives you the experience that it looks like you're going to have because you've got this these colorful miniatures on a board you've got these cool little pyramids which are basically just d4 triangular dice, dice which you can flip to level up your pyramids lovely and then you have a shared shop of things where you can buy things from the shop and you have a little booklet we call the wine list where you go through and you go, what do I want? And then quickly, your plans for all the things you're going to buy from the shop evaporate as everyone else buys the things you were going to buy and you're scrambling around and you're fighting and you're looking for points and the game ends really quickly. It's got a very unusual structure, doesn't it? Where to begin with, it's just a really straightforward war game, yep. except sitting to the side are about 60 tokens mm-hmm. of game-breaking powers. Yep. Everyone starts comp- just like getting powers which are just absurd over the course of the game and then just as players are practically demigods the game's over yeah it's over in about an hour it's very quick and also the fact that within this shop you've got these again like we were talking earlier with scale you have these cool big miniatures that like you can be like I'm gonna I'm gonna buy a giant scorpion who's gonna wander around the desert with me and unlike in Rising Sun when you've got a giant scorpion roaming the desert with you it strikes fear into people and it strikes joy into you (laughs) so it's one of these things where it really does deliver on the promise of what it appears to be and um, I love it, and especially you know playing Innis uh, more and more. Um, it's like yeah, Comet has a place as well of being like I want a quick, colourful, bitey game which is exciting and doesn't outstay its welcome. So it's- the expansions are interesting, okay? Because so I need to go back and play some more of Set, okay. which is the the more recent one, the more exciting one. It's it brings in the conceit of because it's already a game which is basically based on Stargate. Right. Uh, intellectual property that most people who are not 35 or older have never heard of anymore because it wasn't it wasn't that good was it let's be real <laughs> but it was fun and interesting in which like ah there's a bad alien who is in ancient egypt and it's like what if ancient egypt actually was made by aliens and they were bad and and what if people accidentally go through a warp gate through time and have to fight them and what if uh, uh what's his name the guy who's Mad Martigan, who's a good actor. I like him. Anyway, what a film. <laughs> so, uh, we're, but we, we're not quite doing Aliens, no, right? No, we're not quite doing Aliens. But basically the general gist is that there are one group of people who are ostensibly also Egyptians, but they're really tall and dangerous looking and they're 
being controlled by somebody who is just more powerful and they're in charge of the desert. So it turns it into an all versus one All versus one, game. which means all of the other people with their armies have to collude and make plans and buy powers collectively because then they can like move their pieces around the map, basically trying to make their armies as diverse as possible so that when you go on the offensive you get the powers of three or four or five people when fighting against the big bad who is just nasty and more powerful and has access to all sorts of weird tricks and you know it's one of these things where turning a game like this which is a free-for-all into an all v1 is interesting and it's a joy to teach the new rules for it because so many of them are things that you just say oh you've got to do this now and all the players go what (laughs) the fact that one of the first things you have to do is go oh you all need to give me one of your colored chips and you go okay right and they give you one of your colored chips and they're like oh but doesn't that mean i've got one less action in the game you're like yes and they go well well, why why have you taken it away it's like oh because i can use them to do bad things to you and they're like, what? <laughs> so it really does like have a set of rules which really amplify this idea of you are you are the big bad. Um, and yeah, basically it creates a, a game mode where they need to then build these temples in the desert. And then by doing that, they'll get permanent buffs. And then if they can finish a temple and pull off a ritual, then they can then travel through the Stargate and fight you in your base. <laughs> it's not called a Stargate in the manual, but let's be real, it's a Stargate. And... Yeah, it's it's such a cool idea. And really, like, you know, we've talked a lot in the past about, like, it's really exciting to see people not just adding kind of additional stuff, but actually adding things which which take a game you love and turn it into a different game. And I, I kind of agree with that sentiment, but I also am increasingly starting to see that sometimes that's just like a, a very tricky proposition. Yeah, I've always been a fan of expansions which offer something uh, that helps you to see the base game in a different light. That's the gold standard for me, where... If an expansion is exciting to play with, but then you go, oh, I just, but I love the simplicity of the base game. Yeah. And then you play the base game and you go, oh, but I love the messiness of the expansion. Yeah. You seem to have a bad version of that where it's just making you like the base game. More. I mean, I don't, I think I, on paper, I love the idea of this, like enjoying the messiness versus the simplicity. But it's very rare, I think, that, that you manage that. I think actually one of the few times I've seen that would be a video game, uh, which was uh, the sequel to, in a way, actually, like the first modern XCOM game was kind of like, oh, this is just really neat, really tight. And then the second one was like, oh, this is a bit messy. And then the DLC for the second XCOM game just went full on like... And I, I really enjoy all elements of that. And in the same way, it makes me enjoy, like, re-enjoy the kind of more simple basics. But... In this, it makes the game more complicated uh, for some people, basically. The game for the collaborators, basically. You're talking uh, about Comet Set. Yeah, Comet Set, the, the, when they're trying to work together, it makes their game more complicated because they need to work out what powers they're going to buy for themselves, <laughs> but they need to talk to other people and work out how they're going to collaborate, both in terms of uh, what powers they should buy, but also where they're going to move and how they're going to move on the map. And it creates a puzzle which is quite complex actually and is like a little bit pandemic-y but maybe more so of just trying to work out how you can physically move and physically unlock all these things and move your armies around in in an optimal way and i think it makes it it's it's so kind of abstract that i think it makes it probably very prone to backseat driving but but also it just and this is what i found actually with with both the expansions. And I do think that set may have more potential. I'd like to play it again on a slow afternoon because both all of the expansions just make the game a lot longer because, yeah, they just expand the length of it. But with 
this first expansion particularly just adds a new shop. And I think in what both these expansions And the did, first expansion is called Tarsetti? Tarsetti. So Tarsetti adds um, a whole new range of tiles. So you have like blue tiles, red tiles, white tiles, and now black tiles. So you have four different shops you can go in, technically. But in a way, all that really did when I was playing with it was it highlighted the fact that the wonderful thing about Kamat is this initial bounty of options so quickly filters down to being like, well, what's left? It's like another way that players actually uh, interact, isn't it? Yeah, it is. People buy things and you go, nope, because you wanted that. And also it helps keep the game pacey because it means at the point in the game where suddenly decisions are more important, your decisions are actually being limited because there's just less stuff to buy, which means Mm. you're spending less time looking at the little manual. So by having this window close and having it being more time, the game just goes on and on. And the same thing was true with, with... with set of it being like this is an interesting idea of like what happens if you can combine armies and the movement being like picking up and dropping units as you go to merge them all together but it creates a puzzle that kind of just slows the game down and isn't actually it's interesting but it doesn't really get to the heart of what Komet is so the interesting thing for me is playing both of these expansions it's kind of reminded me and highlighted for me the things that make Komet amazing. I think this is going to be... Because you've actually decided we're going to do something unusual and, and just do a video review on the expansions, right? Yeah, because, I think so. Because there because I did a video review of Komet yonks ago. Yeah. Six metric yonks. Yeah. Uh, but now... It, I, I, when I was when I used to work as a video critic, we always said that expansion reviews were really boring because it's often like, well, if you like this kind of thing, there's more of it. Mm-hmm. Whereas expansions for board games are often... I've, I'm starting to find reviewing expansions fascinating. Yeah, it's odd, um, but I think it's it's interesting in the fact that these expansions really have made me see um, Komet in a different light, and it's made me realise that, like, as a game, it still has a lot of value today. I think this is why we often get cynical when Kickstarters uh, release expansions at the same time as the base game, because, yeah, I mean, you need that game to be released, and you need players to react to it to find out... Yeah, you need to work out what it needs. Yeah, exactly. And the idea of, like, oh, our game's coming out, and we've got two expansions out of the gate, it's like, that's not going to be solid. There's no, no way. No, it's also that thing of being like, if you give people too many options, it's like, well, what am I supposed to play this? Like, yep. if you get a game and it comes with three expansions, like, well, how do I do this? And very briefly, you've been uh, poking an expansion for Altiplano, haven't you? Yes, I have. Altiplano expansion, I really like a lot. The Traveller um, involves effectively adding another cardboard board to the, the sort of collection of boards that sits on a table. Weird sort of uh, archipelago of boards. Yeah, it's like a circle of locations that you then travel around. And this adds another one that sits in the middle of it. And I've got to tell you, like, it's those big bits of cardboard. Like, this is a big table game. Really? Yeah, like, when you've got the travel expansion, all the bits, you forget. It's like, you've got two player boards in front of you that are both quite large. (laughs) And then cards. It's a real beast. Um, But Traveller really does... Uh, ramp up Altiplano and make it much more exciting. Like I really like Altiplano, but I can completely understand why lots of people are like it's fine because it is kind of just fine. But there's something about it that I find very pleasing in terms of the the theming and the pace. You're traveling around the Andes, picking up alpacas and carpets and putting them in your bag. You are. You're like I'm going to make some glass. Or I'm going to make some wood. I'm going to make some boats. I'm going to make some houses. It kind of tickles the same itch for me is like Yui Rosenberg stuff like A Feast for Odin or you know just being like I'm kind of doing some stuff and having a nice time maybe I'll get loads of points to win I don't care (laughs) but The Traveller is cool because basically it adds a little character who moves around between locations and if you are in the same location as this person then you can basically like you can use special things you can trade with him for things you can do extra things and then also you can buy these other special powers from like from him, effectively. And it, it basically added more of an element of um, 
real interaction between players because you also have this shared market whereby you can sell him stuff and then the objects you sell then sit in this middle market and you can't buy the stuff that you sold but any other player can so yeah so it means you actually like removing things from your bag like being like oh i'm gonna get rid of this piece of silver or whatever and then it means like hey that's not in my bag anymore it's like completely out of the game but it means someone else can have it and it means that basically you're constantly looking at like a hawk and if somebody else sells something, you think, I really want that bit of wood. Especially later in the game where it's like, there's no more wood. And you're like, I need a piece of wood so badly. <laughs> um, you are actually watching what other people are do, doing more like a hawk. And also the, the where the man travels to next is kind of like based on him moving around the circle, but to where there isn't anyone. So you can kind of, if you're late in the game, go, you can kind of choose where he goes. And it also has the adaptiveness of you. You can be like, well, I wasn't going to go to this location, but because he's there, what can I do? It makes the game more dynamic. It makes the game definitely feel like... Because um, the problem I had with Altiplano is this didn't really feel like in the base game there was any good reason for you not to take your goes simultaneously. The only reason that you wouldn't do that is because there are some locations where you can buy a card and you can choose whichever card you want. And yep. so if you both want to do that, it's like, hey... You got that canoe. I wanted that canoe. And technically it was your go first. So you have to play in order. But 90% of the time, there's no reason for it. And it's just like, it could be way faster if it's just like, go, everyone go, everyone go, everyone go. And then anytime, you, and you could house rule that of being anytime there's like, you're buying a card, you need to say, I'm buying a card. <laughs> and then you work out the turn order. But in this... That it, sounds good to me. Like, if players can play simultaneously, that's, it speeds up the game dramatically, Yeah, right? but that's the problem, is in the base game, you couldn't quite do that. They ah. hadn't designed it so you could play simultaneously. And if they had done, I think I'd like it a lot more. What the Traveller does is it actually makes it seem reasonable that you take it in turns. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Because there's enough interaction that it makes sense. At the time of this podcast coming out, I will have released a new video review on a new Ryan Knizia game called El Dorado. El Dorado. And Matt, you've been watching me play this via the Shut Up and Sit Down Instagram. Yeah, and I've been like, what's this El Dorado game Quincy's keeps talking about? It's really good. So it's also super simple. And most importantly, Shut Up and Sit Down now has another racing game we can recommend that isn't Flam Rouge. Wow. Uh, so El Dorado is a game about expeditions um, rushing towards... Uh, Bicycles. Uh, God, the, I can't even... I can't joke about El Dorado too much. About the golden... The, the mythical... The city of gold. Golden city of El Dorado. And I'll say right now, if there's one board game on this podcast that you go out and order, it maybe should be El Dorado. Oh, yeah? So this is an expedition game where everyone has a little wooden piece on a map of uh, large hexagons that contain smaller hexagons so like one hex might be oh it's a forest with a river running through it and the next hex is a hex is a winding mountain path um the next hex might be full of villages but this is these all these hexes this big sprawling map that you create before the game begins um is your path it's like your race it's like a big wild marathon through the jungles but what you're actually playing is a deck building game and that's a mechanic where, that's an uh, idea in board games where everyone has their own deck. And to begin with, it might just have some adventurers who have like a piddly one machete value, which means they can move you through a bit of forest. You might have some travelers who have a bit of money. But what you really want is like the, you know, the trailblazer cards uh, who will blast you through like four machete hexes or, or the millionaires who will help you to just pay your way through like hex after hex after hex of, of encampments by going, have some money, don't kill me, have some money, don't kill me. I'll have some gold, I guess. Um, but here's the, the catch and the way the game works. is So let's say Matt, it's your turn, right? You draw a hand of cards 
and it's machete machete coin coin on your rubbish starting deck of cards. Okay. Um, you could use that to go through a machete hex, then go, which is a jungle hex. Mm-hmm. Go through a jungle, go through a jungle, go through a village, go through a village. Mm-hmm. Except because of how the board's set up, you probably can't do exactly that. You probably can't use all your cards because right. it might be like jungle, jungle, then a river. And you don't have a little ore card, so you can't row across the river. So any cards you don't use on your turn, though, mm. um, for movement, you can instead spend as money that, to then buy another card that goes into your deck. Oh, I really like it already. <laughs> it's you know, it's funny. I, just, I can see it in my head, and I want to play it. It's now. a little bit like Flam Rouge in that you've got a deck that you're managing over the course of the race. But unlike Flam Rouge, where your deck gets thinner and thinner and thinner, in El Dorado it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So an example of like how the game works is uh, because also there are camp spaces where the cost of entering a camp space is you pick any card from your hand and remove it from the game, ah. which which is good, right? Because it means if you go to a camp and enter the camp, you can take one of the crap cards in your hand and remove it from the game. And as you're buying new and bigger and better cards like cartographers and scientists and native guides, you don't want those crap cards like the little adventurers no. and travelers. They're gone. But here's the catch, Matt. The camps, which, which let you remove cards, are often not on the racing line through the board. So ah, you're like... Oh, pit stops. Yeah, it's like, it's exactly... That's how I call it in my review. It's um, pit, They're pit stops. And I put in a little noise of... Uh, you know, the drill being removed from a wheel as someone removes a card nice. from the... Yeah. Nice. Um, but yeah, so it's the game is very much like, often because of the board, you're like, oh, I could go through the jungle or I could take that river route. But because when you buy cards, they go into the discard, so they take multiple turns to cycle around and give you even a chance of drawing them. Mm-hmm. You need to be building your deck based on what's ahead of you in the in the in the sort of like uh, journey. So if you want to go down that river, like way down the line, you have to start buying sea captains early. But then, honestly, funny thing, my favorite thing about the game and what makes it sing is that players can't move through each other. So if someone's pawn is in a hex, you cannot... It's not just that you can't stop on that hex. You cannot move through them, which means... And this is like, goodness me, it's it's Rainer Knizia game design magic. You desperately want to be first. Because if you're first, it means you can always move to whatever hex you want to. If you're second, or God forbid, you're like stuck between two players, a lot of the time you're like, let's say you draw your hand of cards and Matt, that like the trailblazer who gives you like six machete, that's great. But the only jungle hex you could move into, your friend's on it. Yeah. But so while it's great to be first, and that means, okay, to begin with, right, just that's sensible. You just play whatever cards you have to to be in first place. What that means though is the players who out of the gate don't move and just start upgrading their deck. Like, yes, you're in first place, but those players who didn't move have a way better deck than you and suddenly they're moving real fast. <laughs> it's just rock solid. Um, you sounded just, like you were going to make a no, noise. I just, it just sounds great. Uh, I can see it. I can see that there's like some strange similarities to to other race games like, you know, Flammaroos. They even like the fact that you're not kind of not wanting to get stuck behind someone effectively yeah yeah it's just so good uh so uh, we won't talk about it now because i have just done the video um but if you search for shut up and sit down in el dorado on our site or in google or youtube um you'll find my review which is also a review of the first expansion heroes and hexes which adds fun curses like blank cards to your deck and heroes like christopher dundee and gertrude everdeen <laughs> you see because they're references to yeah famous people i'm not wild about that but you can hear me complaining about that in my video review so finally let's do a little talk about what might be the most interesting game we talk about in this podcast let's talk about tramways crazy little thing called tramways this is a game which i will leave matt to describe in a second but despite people on the periphery talking about it it had never entered the mainstream mm. and last night we found out 
why that is. Yeah, it's a really strange, esoteric, odd little game where ostensibly what you have to do is build tramways around a city which has people in it and different types of building like leisure places, industry zones, commercial residences. And uh, what's the other one? Uh, residential. Residential. Places where people live. Normal house. And you build tramways, and then you can use the cards in your hand as well to also act as tram tickets to take people to locations, to be like, swipe there, and then this person is going to travel to a residential zone. Every time a person travels along one of your tramways, uh, depending on where their destination is, you'll get some sort of bonus. You'll then get net happiness, because people, of course, love trams. (laughs) Uh, And at the end of the game, the person with the most happiness, in terms of how happy their customers are, wins but also you've got stress so sometimes when you do things you can increase the stress of the people driving riding on your trams and that will lose you points at the end of the game the stupid thing of if you send a little person in the city to work mm-hmm. you get mu- you tend to get money and rewards but your people get very stressed by mm. your tram they associate your tramways with oh that's that awful tram that takes Take me to home, work every day and they love you they love you take forever. them home and it lowers the stress associated with your train line also strangely after anyone rides a tram they disappear forever which means you basically have a board to begin with that's full of lots of little wooden meeples who then go home or go to work and are never seen again. <laughs> um, and then eventually, like, more people will appear on the board, but often it becomes this bizarre... It's one of the most interactive things I've played in a while in the fact that you are all drawing from the same pool of potential customers that will disappear after they've ridden one tram. <laughs> and then you're also all building tramways, um, not just for yourself, but for everyone else. And anyone can use anyone's tramways, but using a, your... Every time you use tramways, you'll get a combination of happiness points and money uh, based on factors we don't need to go into. Um, But also it means that if you can build a really good tramway that other people will use begrudgingly, then you'll just be racking up points and money throughout the whole game just because you built a great rail line. It was so stupid. About two thirds of the way through our game, we were looking at Clark and be like, Clark, why do you have so many victory points? And it turned out he he owned like two tiny curves yeah. in the middle of town, which none of us noticed, but anytime any of us delivered anything, we used Clark's goddamn yeah. He's like, curve. oh, we'll go that, because he had to. Like It was just an, a little network of tiny, tiny railways, which just was making him huge amounts of points and a decent amount of bank. Whereas I made the mistake very early in the game of looking at the board and not really knowing what it was. And um, and looking at our kind of initial plots we've been allocated, a little bit similar to something like Lords of Vegas, of being like, okay, this is these are the bits of land you learn that you can develop into buildings later. And I built some railway tracks that basically were just intended to try and get in people's way, to be like, that'll be annoying. People people won't be able to get out of there. Or like, I'll make these weird, I made these weird curvy railways. It was like, ah, because of the way I've curved these railways, you can't cross over, which means nobody can go on these spaces <laughs> apart from me. So I was kind of being this Victorian barren villain, really, of being yeah. like, ah, my railways are the most annoying in all of England. <laughs> um, and then the problem with that was nobody actually wanted to use these railways apart from me. And even I was kind of going out of my way to use them. <laughs> I mean, it's the, you did, you built the most annoying tramways and then... And then weirdly, no you, one wanted to use them. Not even you. Not even me, which is like, yeah, I kind of... And I can. that's kind of the main reason why I could see why this was not like, a, this is an independent game rather than a published game is because um, I just couldn't what, read what it was. I was using that as shorthand last night, but we should clarify. It, it's it's published by, uh, you know, a designer who's, who's had a lot of success making it. There are loads of expansions for it. So it is published. And in board yeah. games, that it, we just were talking about how, like, 
a publisher with a stable of games, yeah. it would make sense they would not go near this. Yeah, or like, it's a sort of thing where you'd end up smoothing a lot of the edges off of it. And like, this is not like, a, it's not a criticism, it's just an interesting nature of it. The fact that like, I kind of looked at it and thought, oh, I think it's like this. And it's like, no, it isn't. And actually, because you didn't get what it was in the first turn, you're now in an awful lot of trouble. Yeah, I've never, t- it was the hardest thing to teach I've taught in a long, long time. Partially because like, so much of it, so much of your assumptions about it are just wrong. Yeah. Like, I've never teaching a game had so many people go oh and then with this you need to play this card and i'm like no with um, with this is this space connected to this no the auction every round begins with an auction which allows everyone to get a new card for their hand Mm -hmm. and it also determines player order Mm -hmm. the auction is like nothing i've ever played yeah very strange it's this bonkers thing where you put your pip on your vote and then when it and no one else can put their can make their vote the same as anything to the left of them but when it circles back round, the first person can still bid what other players bid. Yeah. So your turn order from the previous round determines how easy the auction is for you next round. Yeah. And also, I mean, it's one of those games whereby a lot of the time we play games where it's like the first game is a wash. It's just like you're learning to play the game and then you play again. But my gosh, like this game starts with you being handed four cards and being like, hey, pick one of these to put in your hand. And you're like, I don't know what's good. Like you literally don't have any idea. And then being like, right, after that, right into an auction, not only like look at these cards <laughs> and decide like which one you want, but decide a monetary value of how much it's worth. And the fact that it's a game where you have this this deck of cards which you cycle through and, you know, like once your discard is full and you can't draw, you then, you know, shuffle that up and and then add cards to that. It means that you're building a machine, basically. And if your machine doesn't work, you're just in, in a lot of trouble. I mean, there are so many traps. It's, I don't want to generalize, but in literally every board game ever where you can build like railways and buildings, like those things are equally valuable. Whereas in tramways, because you build tramways, but then you can build yourself your own little uh, parcels of residential or industrial zone, which we just assumed that, that was a sensible thing to do. Jeez, it takes up half the table mm. building, like all the components you need to yeah. build stuff. But I was then, like, building stuff must be good. It was only when we finished like a four-hour <laughs> game of tramways that I was like, hang on, building stuff is awful. The only reason to do it is because it only gets you one victory point. Yeah. And then it gives you basically that type of building, if you build industrial, gives you essentially a blank card. Like, mm-hmm. not blank, but extremely specific that's going to be tying you up for the rest of the game. So the more buildings you build, yeah, you're putting more passengers on the board, but also A, everyone can use those passengers, and B, you're clogging up your deck with garbage. Yeah, it's it's an odd one. And I'm really interested to check it out again with the more, more advanced board where we suspect that maybe there'd be less cities and less locations, so it would be more on the players to be inventing uh, an economic ecosystem for people to use. Yeah, and uh, I'm, I'm curious just to browse all of the expansions because he's put out so far four different ones for each color of buildings. So there's the red, green, blue, and yellow expansions, wow. all of which have like three modules to add things like conductors or central train stations or literally a dozen other things you can Gosh. put into your game. I mean, I found it like really interesting and enjoyable, but it was like, especially for somebody who's fairly seasoned, uh, playing games and understanding games I, I fell down like every stair in the book you know it was this thing of being like oh hang on no there will you know these railway workers that i need to build railway lines don't regenerate and i've used the card that i would have had to have still in my hand at the end to get one back and then being like oh well, it's fine because i can get another one of those cards by going to one of the blue centers but then oh no i need a blue symbol to go to a blue center do i not have any of them in my hand no i don't have any of them <laughs> also I don't have any of the red symbols i assume that they were all oh no there's no way i can get either of those things i should have been bidding for them the first two rounds i got halfway through and i think everyone thought my head was having a brain moment because i was like kept saying to quinn's like i don't think 
think there's anything I can do. I was like, come on, you like, oh, no, misunderstood come on, a rule. Like, you must have, yeah, you must have, there must be something. And in the end, I just showed you my hand and you were like, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, I, I, I just had played the game really badly. And all I'd say about it is it's one of these things where you have these cards that do different things and you have to tactically think about what you're going to do with those cards at the start of the round. And you're only ever allowed a maximum of three things you can do in each round anyway. So even if you've got eight, nine cards in hand, it's not going to make a huge difference. But it reminded me a lot of original brass of being like having this hand of cards that you then have to make a concrete airtight plan with that then gets messed up by other people doing things in the same spaces that you wanted to. Yeah. But then it's that combined with the Tigris and Euphrates of having this complex grid game whereby one tiny power play of like, you know, Clark putting that tiny bit of rail between those two buildings like just made him so many points i mean it was ridiculous you and i got whomped by two people who are not as au fait with like resource no. management economic games my mate laurie like is he said oh i i can't really do numbers and he just absolutely <laughs> destroyed yeah, ridiculous us. you were trying to like oh I'll wall people off or i'm thinking oh goodness i guess i went we'll into be- like buildings and upgrading buildings i was i was looking at like what felt like a traditional end game point scorer yeah and, and I, laurie just made a brilliant tram and i was thinking about like well let's make loads of money meanwhile laurie's like well the game's called tramways right what happens if if I just build a really long, long tramway right, yeah. through the middle of the board and then demolished everyone's yeah, scores. So, I mean, I kind of think like we went into it being like, maybe it's like food chain magnate. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it's like we were approaching it being too complicated and we should have just made a big fun railway. I I have no idea. But also if it's a game about <laughs> making big fun railways, I, I mean, I didn't fully enjoy our game of tramways because I'm sat there like telling everyone you can do that you can't do that here's the answer to your question stop that that's illegal and despite all of that despite me reading the manual twice on the day we we played it before we played it i still got two rules wrong still forgot that the first player gets stressed whoever wins the first player auction also gets stressed and something else to do with traveling yeah it's very bitty and it's one of those games again though like we we often find with these mad sometimes frustratingly bitty rulesy things like um, War for the Ring. War for the Ring. Uh, and um, I guess Pipeline. It did. I did wake up this morning being like, I'd kind of like to play that again. But it's so it's so tricky. Like when you have these games where it's like you literally have to play them once and then next time you play them, you, you'll have a good time. It, I find it so hard to justify those when it's not an experience which is just like really unique or magical. Like for War, of the, War for the Ring, it's like, it's, I get that. Like, there's nothing like it. Exactly. It yeah. gives you an experience where it's like, yeah, you're going to have to work for this, but there's nothing like this. Yeah. Whereas Tramways, like you say, it's a bit brass. It's a bit Tigris and Euphrates. It's a bit food chain magnate. Yeah. And yet I would probably rather play. I don't know. I don't know. There's magic here. And the fact that we both woke up this morning being like, still thinking about it, wanted to play it again. If yeah. you're curious about Tramways, I would definitely give it a Google because I don't think it's the last time you'll hear about it. On yeah. Channel to sit down. I definitely want to go back and play some more of it. Yeah. Um, especially flipping the board it gave me an, almost like a railroading thing of wanting to trail the expansions of being like I want to flip this and play with more rivers and mountains I want to um, flip it and make it harder to build trams so that individual rail placement is important I also am really interested in the expansions and I also know that it's got a kickstarter for a massive expansion check this out it's got an expansion called Dystopia which will be hitting on kickstarter later this year that takes the game to the moon what? Trams on the moon, Matthew Lees. I can't believe it. I refuse to believe it. Yeah, so that's Tramways. We're definitely going to be playing it some more and talking about it and trying to figure out what the hell it is. Mm. It's time for you to get your blood tested, am yeah, I right? I've got to go and I'm going to have an adrenaline test, I think. Is I, that where they just see how rad you are? I think so, yeah. They've told me, like, I have to be try and be as rad as I can and then they're going to check it on the radometer. They don't think anything's wrong with my uh, adrenal system, but they're like, hey, let's check it out. 
Why not? <laughs> Thanks as always for listening to the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. We'll be back in another couple of weeks with some more board and card games. And thanks as always to Mr. Steve Davitt for providing that funky sax that so colours this podcast. Thank you very much, Stephen. Play that funky sax, dear Stephen. Goodbye. Goodbye.